Well, if you will, uh, take out your uh, Bibles and turn over to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. We're going to continue uh, our journey through this somewhat of a sermon uh, that Zechariah is preaching here in the, in the very center of this book of the Bible. We, we know that we're kind of changing direction, if you will, uh, within this book. Chapters 1 through 7 has been all about this coming kingdom of God. And, and in chapters 9 through the rest of the book, we'll be looking at, after Advent, uh, this, this idea of what the coming king is like. We've been thinking a lot about the coming kingdom, but then uh, as, as Zechariah changes his focus at the latter half of the book, he's going to focus upon the coming king. And so here in chapter 8, he is given the second part of his two-part sermon. That comes on the heels of chapter 7. And if you were with us last uh, Lord's Day evening, you know that chapter 7 was a little bit of a gut punch, if we're honest. It it carried some strong rebukes. It carried a a heavy message of God's judgment against those who went through the outward workings of religion but had an indifferent heart to the the gospel. And, And even Zechariah said that that the reason why they are indifferent to a life of righteousness, even though they go through the motions of, of religion, is because they have a, a diamond-hearted heart. Uh, he, he, he uses the, the, the hardiness of a diamond. and says just as it's impossible to, to crush a diamond in man's own power, it's impossible for him to crush his own hard heart without the, without the work of the Holy Spirit. And so he says the Holy Spirit hasn't worked on them yet. Uh, And and so their hearts are hardened to the ways of the Lord. They refuse to pay attention, it says. And they turned aside uh, in their stubborn shoulder uh, and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Well, on the heels of that hard message of judgment, there's a beautiful proclamation of of grace upon grace, the gospel in in chapter 8. I want to read it all in its entirety, uh, but knowing... uh, for the sake of time, I think we'd be here for two hours if I tried to preach the whole chapter. So we're going to try to come back to it after, Lord willing, the Advent season. We're going to read it all in its, in its entirety to get the context, and then we'll just start moving through the chapter and uh, at an appropriate time. I'll, I'll wind us down. Hear the word of God, people of God, for it's written for you. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with a great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of the people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness." Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing these words from my mouth of the prophets who were present on that day, 
that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For, the, for before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I said, every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you and shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. There are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah's seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even in the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Thus ended the reading of God's word. Let, it, let him write his eternal truths upon uh, our hearts. Well, uh, in, in something of an answer to, to the representation from Bethel that approached Zechariah in last week's chapter, chapter 7. You remember these men came from Bethel, one of the neighboring cities of Jerusalem where Jews have left the empire of Babylon. They have returned somewhat home, probably about a half day's journey from Jerusalem. And they are concerned about the fast. Are they still to fast on the fifth month of the year in mourning of the destruction of the temple? We, we were reminded last week when we introduced chapter 7 that between the, the long night that Zechariah has with all of these visions and prophecies, there's about a two-year hiatus that Zechariah finds himself in before he begins to preach this sermon that started in chapter 7. And... And I think the representation was looking for a yes or no answer. I, I really do. I think they were just wondering, do we have to fast? The, the temple's halfway built. The city is beginning to experience some sort of prosperity again. Do we really have to fast uh, to remember the destruction of the temple and how the Lord sent us into the empire of Babylon? Do we really need to do that? And they were anticipating Zechariah going yes or no. Now, some of you, uh, especially if you're using the adult quarterly on, on Sunday mornings in Sunday school classes, some of you have called or visited 
uh, in the week and said, listen, I'm having trouble with, with uh, understanding the Sunday school answer. Does this mean this? Or does Dr. Duguid, who writes the, the adult quarterly now, does he mean this? And you're probably expecting me to say yes or no. But usually that carries us into a 30-minute or 45-minute or if I'm feeling a little springy that morning, an hour-long conversation about what I think Dr. Duguid is trying to say and what I think the text is trying to say and the many different interpretations of commentaries and things like that, I believe that the representation might feel a little exhausted like some of y'all do when y'all begin to ask those questions because they have now heard this message of, of hard judgment. The reason why you want to know if we have to fast anymore is because you just don't want to go through the, the problems or the troubles of fasting. We, we talked about last week how fasting is a, is a difficult thing for the life of the Christian. It, it's refraining usually from food, but something that is sacrificed, we give it up so that we might say to the Lord, we long for you more than we long for food, or we long for you more than we long for something that we are fasting from. And, and the prophet Zechariah says, you know, you, you've gone through the outward motions of the fast, but really your heart did not long for me. You, your heart was hard against me. And, and even as you've heard the gospel preach, even as you've heard the judgments of the Lord promised, you have turned your shoulder and you have stopped up your ears so that you might not hear. And if you will remain in that state, he's saying, you will meet the judgment of the Lord. Well, here it is that, that Zechariah presents the gospel to this representation from Bethel because he wants to know that the, the hour of mercy is still here. Somebody asked me not that long ago, why do I think that God has not come back yet? Why has he not sent Jesus to, to gather his people again? And I said, well, obviously, he still has people that he desires to save. There, there, there is a season, if you will, that we are living in of mercy. That God still establishes the free offer of the gospel and he hasn't drawn his people unto himself. There's still sinners that need to hear the gospel and there's still sinners that need to repent of their sins and turn towards Christ. And in something of the same way, Zechariah knows that this period of mercy still exists. And so he's going to preach a message that you've all heard before. Now, admittedly, the text in, in Zechariah chapter 8 is actually quite hard to get through. You have a lot of these, thus says the Lord. I actually like to read that in, in the King James English, thus saith the Lord. I preach from the ESV. We use the ESV here in the sanctuary. But if I'm reading in my office, it's, it's, it's the New King James Version. And so anytime I hear that, thus saith the Lord, it rolls a little bit better than our common English. And so it's a little choppy, it's a little hard to understand, but it's a message that you've heard nonetheless. And it's actually a message that we sing quite often, and it's from a hymn that we love. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see, all I have needed, thy hand has provided. 
Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. That is the message of, of Zechariah chapter 8. And the representation from Bethel have, is having a hard time grasping that truth. Have you ever sang that hymn here? And, and you really had a hard time believing what you sung? Have you ever experienced that? I don't know if you've ever experienced that. It's one thing to sing a hymn. It's another thing to, to believe the hymn, isn't it? That, that you stand there and you sing that the faithfulness of the Lord is sure, and yet you're having a hard time grasping that. That's something of the representation from Bethel. They have ha- heard this hard judgment from the Lord. They have heard how their heart is hardened. They, they have heard a message of, of justice and, and judgment and, and wrath of God. And now Zechariah is saying, but the Lord is faithful. The Lord's actually faithful to save all those who will come to Him in faith and repentance. And, and as the representation is having a, a hard time grasping that truth, Zechariah says, it's not my word that I'm telling you. It, it's actually the word of the Lord that promises this salvation for all those who would believe. In fact, what happens here in our, in our text of, of Zechariah chapter 8, this, this summons to, to holiness, this summons to faith, the prophet Zechariah will actually use this running theme, thus says the Lord, ten times throughout these 23 verses. And it's all a reminder that God swears upon His own name that He is the Savior of sinners. That He is the one that is faithful. That even after the stunning rebuke of your sin, God swears upon His own name because there's nothing greater to swear upon that He will save the most wicked of sinners. You know, one of the things that we often struggle with is, is the law, is the call to holiness. I hope that you struggle with it at least. Because when you look at the law, and you've heard me say this before, when you look at the law, it's supposed to beat you in the ground. It's supposed to show you how wicked you are. It's supposed to show you how sinful you are. And in the moment, in that moment, the accuser, Satan himself, comes in your ear and he begins to say, you know, you're never deserving of God's grace and mercy. God would never save a wicked sinner like you. God, you've done way too much sin for God to ever forgive you in mercy and in grace. The root of the law shows you your own wickedness, but then, praise God, it actually shows you Christ. Because what Pastor Don said when we were looking at Zechariah chapter 4 and the great high priest, and we sang Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Martin Luther was famous for saying, When the accuser comes to you and tries to tempt you to despair, telling you that you've committed so many sins and you've done so many wrong things and you have have committed every iniquity and you have struck against the law more times than you can count. Martin Luther says when when the tempter and the accuser, Satan himself, comes to you and begins to preach that message, you go, so what of it? I know a Christ who has completed every piece of the law that I have failed. And I know a Christ that has went to, a, went to a cross for my salvation. And so Zechariah's message here is that God's compassion changes not. That He swears upon His own name and because the Lord's character is consistent, 
His grace and His mercy and His gospel is consistent. And great is His faithfulness for all of those people who will come to faith in Him. And I love how Zechariah says it. He goes, don't take my word for it. Look to the words of thus says the Lord. And in this message of grace and mercy and repentance, in this message of of promises that God has made for the people of God, really, the first thing that we need to see is that the law and the gospel do not contradict one another. The law and the gospel do not contradict one another. When, when, When Zechariah takes this opportunity to begin to preach the law and the gospel. He, he uses all three ways that the Christian is supposed to use the law to preach Christ. He says, look at your sinfulness and hard-heartedness. Look to salvation in Christ. And now go walk in Christ-likeness. Go be like your Lord. And so, really, what we see here in chapter 8 is that there's a, there's a picture of grace and mercy... That's beyond our comprehension. It summons us to Christ and then it pushes us to obedience. One commentator said, in this chapter, the law and the gospel join hands in promoting the salvation and obedience and godliness of God's people. The commentator says, we need to be both warned and wooed. We need to be both exhorted and encouraged. We need to be both confronted and comforted. We need to be both rebuked and reassured. That the law and the gospel are not enemies in the Christian life, but the very best of friends. And they completely agree in this matter of salvation. That the Lord justifies, that the Lord sanctifies, and that the Lord glorifies. And he says... That very message, that the law and the gospel preaches a full message of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification, with three images. And I think we're only going to be able to get through the first image here. But the first image, is, the first image in verses 1 through 8 is this new Jerusalem. For the sake of time, just look back at verse 3 if you have your copies of God, God's Word open. We're back at one of those, thus says the Lord. He says, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Here in verses 1 through 8, as as Zechariah draws this picture, this illustration, if you will, of a a new Jerusalem, of course, he's not talking about the Jerusalem that would be reestablished physically in the time of Jesus. He's not talking about the temple that will be rebuilt in the Jerusalem and the walls that will be rebuilt around the city. He's talking about the new Jerusalem that John sees coming down in Revelation chapter 21. And and here it is that the greatest thing about the new Jerusalem, as it's written about in verse 3, is a message that Zechariah has already preached as he saw the vision of the myrtle trees early in the book. I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. The Lord is in our midst. That's the greatest fact about the new Jerusalem that John sees coming down. You remember as John sees the heavens and the earth coming down from heaven, he says that this city is grand and it's large and and it's measurements can't even be understood or comprehended by human measurements and 
and, and he sees the angels, and he, and he sees all these things, right? He, he goes through this long list of beautiful aspects about the new heavens and the new earth, and he says, but yet I see the Lamb in the center. And there's no need for light in that city because the Lamb of God is the Son of the new heavens and the new earth. He is the light. That's the same exact message that Zechariah is preaching here. That, that the Lord God Almighty Himself is in the very midst of Jerusalem, is at the center of this new Jerusalem. But if you look at verse 2, that comes right before verse 3, of course. He says the reason why He is going to be at the very center of this new Jerusalem is because He is jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with a great wrath. What do you think the point of that verse is? That the Lord is jealous for His people. Now, when we, when we say that, we, we cannot understand this word jealous like some sort of envious lover over, overcome with some emotional fit. That, that might be how we use, that might be how we use that term. That, that the Lord is jealous it's not any sort of sinful action. It's actually, if you look at the, the Hebrew language there, the same root for jealous is the same root for zealous. It's, it's actually the same in English as well. It has that same root, and it's showing you that there is a, a powerful, a, a powerful, all-inspiring affection that the Lord has for His people. And that should, that should bring about a, a comfort for us, I think, that the Lord is filled with a, a holy zeal for His beloved people, so much so that He will not share His people with another. His wrath is kindled against those who threaten her. And, and you think about how we, we just sung, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It talks about the destruction of the evil one. It, it talks about how the Lord, being our fortress, is mighty to save. It talks about how we can anchor our souls in the very fact that our God, as our King, execute His decrees and completes victory over all of His and our enemies. And so the Lord, what Zechariah is saying is, because the Lord is jealous, because the Lord is zealous for His people, He will fight to have her with Him. He will fight to have her with him. And so you think about this idea that the Lord is jealous or he's zealous for the church's purity. He's jealous or zealous for his church's affections. He is the bridegroom who will stop at nothing to guard us and to keep us. And that means that he will indeed bind the strong man, as he says in Matthew chapter 18. He will, not let, he will not let Satan tempt us to despair. He will not let our flesh overcome us. He will not let this sin-filled world bind us down to utter hopelessness. But He will fight for us. And through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, He has already won that battle. You see, the, the zealousness of God's love, the, the jealousy that He has for His people... The very fact that he will fight for his people cannot be seen any more fuller at the cross of Calvary. 
because it shows us that God Himself will stop at nothing to guard and to keep His people. What will He do for the sake of His people? Well, God in the heavens would take upon flesh. He would place Himself under the law. He would be tempted by Satan. He would face a sinner's death. He would be laid in the grave so that He might be resurrected. So that He might ascend on high. So that He might take His place of honor interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. So that every time we sin, He can look at the Father and say, Matt sinned again, but he's mine. Matt sinned again, but my blood was shed to wash that sin away. And so he stands there as our advocate, interceding at the right hand of the Father, because Christ is jealous for us. But not only do you see this jealousy that kind of represents this this renewed relationship with God, that there's no more condemnation that we dread, because now the Lord has counted us as his people, And He has given us the victory in Christ Jesus, but He actually shows us that there's this renewed relationship with one another. We're going to move a little bit faster here in verses 4 and 5. Because you see this this scene in verses 4 and 5 that that the Lord is establishing a new Jerusalem where old men and old women shall sit in the streets of Jerusalem with a staff in their hand because of their great age. It's, It's the picture He's painting of 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 the elderly being able to sit, feeble though they are. They get to sit and they get to fellowship and they get to watch the children play in the midst of the streets because there's no fear of any enemy. There's no fear of any coming, conquering Babylon or Assyria. There's nothing for, for for them to be scared of. The children are playing safely in the streets. The elderly are are resting completely secure. One commentator says, God's God's kingdom will not have come on this earth until its streets are fit for its children. But by the same token, it will not have come until its children are fit for the streets. What, What that commentator is getting to is, that when we have a renewed relationship with one another, there is no more sin that separates us from God or our brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we can rest safely about the streets of the New Jerusalem. That's what God is doing. That's what God is creating for us. He's building a kingdom in which His his people find a safe home and dwell together in harmony and unity and love. The Apostle John gets this. In his first letter to the church at Ephesus, 1 John 1, he says, We have heard Him with our ears. We have seen Him with our eyes. We have touched the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we're preaching this gospel to you. Why? So that you might have fellowship not only with the Father and the Spirit, but also with us. That the perfect picture of harmony and unity for the people of God is not just a renewed relationship between us and God, but a renewed relationship with one another. And that's what comes about in verses 7 and 8 as well. Because it's really easy to say that we have a renewed relationship with one another when we like one another, right? It's one of those things that, that, that we, as a church, I might could safely say that you know, we, you know, we have different backgrounds, we have different socioeconomic statuses, we have different jobs and careers, we have different families, yes, but... There, there, there's commonalities that exist between us as a church. We're reformed. 
We, we believe that the Lord has instituted elders to govern the church. We can just take theological matters and say there's common ground that we can find. It's really easy to, to say that the Lord has secured right relationships between people who have a common ground, we might say. But here in verses 7 and 8, we see that there's renewed relationships not with just the people who are, we are comfortable with, but there's a, a renewed relationship with all the people that God has gathered from the very corners of the earth. And that's shocking for these Jews. You think about what they have endured for 70 years at the hands of the Babylonians, the hands of the Gentiles. And now Zechariah is preaching a message that's going, you know what, if a Babylonian would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be renewed in our relationship with them too. And we're going to be renewed in our relationships from people from all tribes, nations, and tongues. That's what the Lord's doing. That's what the Lord's building in a new Jerusalem. And, and I think that verse 6 comes into play. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord. What Zechariah is saying here is, as I'm explaining this new Jerusalem to you, you might not have really the, the human comprehension to understand how glorious this new Jerusalem will be. But nothing is too marvelous for our Lord. That's what he's saying. Because here it is that, that it's, very in, it's very interesting, I think, that, that Zechariah, as, as the ESV rightly translates it to marvelous here, if it is marvelous in the, Lord, uh, in the sight of the Lord, if it's marvelous, it's that same language in Genesis 18, 14, when God announces to Sarah, Abraham's wife, that she's going to have a son in her old age. And remember, she scoffs at the Lord. And the Lord says, is there anything too difficult for me to do? And, and Sarah struck with conviction, right? Marvelous is that Hebrew word. Is there something too marvelous for the Lord to do? Is there something too beautiful for the Lord to create? Is there a new heavens and a new earth that is too wonderful for me? The Lord Jesus Christ actually says that very same thing to, to the disciples. As Thomas, Jesus has just promised the Holy Spirit, and Thomas being doubting Thomas, says, we don't know the way in which you're going, Lord. How do we get there? You're telling us you're leaving, but how do we get there? And Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And remember what he tells them? That I'm going to help the Father build for you a new heaven. I'm going to go help the Father build you a place of residence in the new earth. And if it was not so, I would have not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And, and the play of language there, that's not just, it, it's, it's just not the same in English translations, but, it, but it's this idea, do you not understand what I've told you? That I'm going because I'm preparing a place for you that is marvelous, that is beautiful, that is wonderful. Is anything too difficult for me to prepare for you as my people and of course the answer is no. The answer is no, isn't it? Because as Zechariah preaches this message of the gospel, 
who then can be saved, right? After, after chapter 7, and Zechariah's preaching this message of judgment, of hard-heartedness, of, of just empty religious motions with an indifferent spirit, you're going, who can be saved? It's the same exact question that the disciples asked, isn't it? Who then can be saved? And the Lord Jesus answered the disciples, with man it is impossible, but nothing is impossible for God. The same language that he uses when he tells us that he's going to prepare a place for us that's marvelous and beautiful and wonderful, the same language that Zechariah uses in chapter 8 to describe the new Jerusalem, which we will inherit forever, this marvelous, wonderful, beautiful city. Jesus says, who then could be saved? With man it's impossible to be saved, but if you'll turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, He can do a marvelous, a wonderful a work that you might say that's impossible in you. And so that prepares us for the Lord's table. Because the Lord's table preaches to us the gospel. It, it, it shows us, yes, that our iniquities were so great that man, in and of ourselves, we could not save ourselves, Right? The Lord's table reminds us of the Lord's death, that His body had to be broken, that His blood had to be shed for the remission of sin. It had to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ had to die, had to be buried, so that He might raise in victory on the third day, that first Easter morning. And so it shows us our sin. It functions much like the law, but it's also a means of ordinary grace. Because as it reminds us that the Lord's body was broken and shed for us. It also reminds us that, that there's a promise for everyone who will come to faith that, that this meal, that this meal is not a table of First Presbyterian Church nor a table of our denomination, the First Pre or Presbyterian Church in America. This meal is a, a, a sign and a seal, to use our language, a sign and a seal that the promises of God are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus says the Lord, you come and eat if you're a believer. Thus says the Lord, you come and you eat even though you have no spiritual money. You come and eat to your field. You come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Because His faithfulness to you is never ending. And He is preparing a marriage feast for us where it won't be just a little piece of bread and a little cup of Welch's grape juice, but it will be the best of foods and the best of wines that we will drink and that we will eat from in His very presence. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us that He will not drink of the cup of the vine until He can drink it with us again. Well, here it is, beloved, that by His Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ invites us into His presence and He tells us to come to feast with Him as an appetizer of the glories that is to come. Of course, there's a, a spiritual fence around this table. If you do not know the Lord... Jesus Christ is as your Savior. If you've not given your life to Him as your King, please do not let this uh, moment pass you by. Let the elements pass you by, but don't let the moment pass you by. You use this time to call out in faith and repentance unto the Lord because He is faithful and He is just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you're harboring sin in your heart, settle that sin before you come to the Lord's table, use this time to confess those sins to your Lord, knowing that all of your sins can be washed away in the blood 
of the Lamb, but, but all those who can come in Christ, knowing that He makes you worthy, knowing that He invites sinners to this table to dine and to eat with Him. You come and you feast upon Christ and with Christ as we look towards the marriage supper of the Lamb that is to come in heaven. Let me pray and the elders will come uh, and then we'll partake together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come to this meal. We pray, Lord, uh, that you would use it to, to strengthen us and to nourish us, to, to cause us to walk in godliness for thy glory. Lord, we know that this meal isn't much for the physical body. It's not going to crave any hunger. It's not going to curb any appetite. But it is much for the spiritual body because we are coming and we are feasting upon Christ as he is spiritually present with us. And we are longing for the day that uh, this bread is not just some simple piece of bread, but it is the, the food of heaven. And so, Father, let us come and eat, and let us come and drink, and let us come to celebrate what the Lord has done. In Christ's name we pray these things.